Hello, Jazz Session listeners. I am Jason Crane, host of the Jazz Session, announcing the 100 by 300 campaign. That's right, my goal is to get 100 members by the 300th show to keep the Jazz Session going, and you can join very easily. Just visit thejazzsession.com and click on either the join link at the top of the page or the one on the side of the page. There are monthly levels starting at 10 bucks a month. There are yearly levels starting at $110 a year. Please join the people who have already become members and help keep the Jazz Session going. The Jazz Session receives no external funding from any source uh, up to and including All About Jazz, and that means for me to keep doing it, I need you. Thousands and thousands of you listen to every show, and if you could find the, uh, the cost of maybe two cups of coffee uh, a month in your couch cushions, you can help keep the show going for years to come. That is the 100 by 300, 100 members by the 300th show. Join now at thejazzsession.com. Welcome to the Jazz Session. I'm Jason Crane. The Jazz Session is presented by AllAboutJazz.com, the web's leading source for jazz news, reviews, MP3 downloads, and more. Every episode of the show is available for free in iTunes and at thejazzsession.com, where you'll also find Amazon links to purchase the music you hear on the show. And if you do it that way, a little bit of your purchase price comes back to the show. And you will, of course, find a Join button so that you can become a member of the Jazz Session and uh, support the 100 by 300 campaign that you heard about just a moment ago. My guest today is Russ Gershon. He is the founder and leader of the Either Orchestra. They have a brand new record called Mood Music for Time Travelers, which begins with the one-of-a-kind shimmy.
My guest is Russ Gershon. He is the uh, the founder and leader of the Either Orchestra. Their new album is called Mood Music for Time Travelers, and they are celebrating an unbelievable 25 years together, which uh, is quite a feat. So congratulations, Russ, and thanks for being on the show. Thank you. My pleasure. I guess uh, for folks who, uh, it's hard to believe there are these people, but for folks who might be being introduced to this music uh, on this show, maybe the, the logical place to start is, is just talking about how this band got started 25 years ago. Well, uh, just for, for your listeners who aren't familiar with us, we're kind of a small big band or an overgrown combo. We have six horns and a rhythm section of piano, bass, drums, and congas for the last 12 years. We have a Latin percussionist. And uh, I started the band in 85 when I um, had been uh, at Berkeley College for about a year after playing in rock bands for a few years. I went to Berkeley to you know, catch up on some theory arranging and so on. And I started to learn how to write music on paper and really to arrange for oh, like a larger horn section, which is something, which is music that I always liked, but had didn't really have the technique and um, when my year of uh, back to, my back to school year in music school was running out uh, my ideas weren't running out and so I said uh, hmm I, I need a I need a rehearsal band I got to get people together every once in a while to play my charts or else I'm not going to write them, you know and so uh, I started a Monday night rehearsal band in my living room and uh, one thing led to the other to another you know after a few weeks sounded pretty good people were excited somebody said let's get a gig we got a gig a lot of people showed up um uh we suddenly we had an audience we started playing in clubs we did a recording um i had it pressed into an lp uh which shows you what was going on 25 years ago uh then somebody said hey let's do a tour and which seems of course totally preposterous for a then 11 piece band uh so well, if it's preposterous, okay, let's do it. And so, you know, we booked, we started booking uh, kind of low-rent gigs around the country, and I bought a van, and, you know, we went out like an indie rock band instead of like a, a jazz big band. And um, that's where we really cut our teeth, was out on the road in the U.S. Um, at a time that almost nobody was touring jazz around the country uh, in this way. Um, and we, we spent, you know, months and months and months in a couple of vans driving around the Midwest and to the West Coast and all over the place. And that's where we really learned how to play together and uh, and how to reach audiences because we weren't playing for, you know, our sophisticated, jaded East Coast city audiences. We were playing for people in small towns and just different kinds of places. And so it, that was, a you know, there were a lot of lessons to be learned there. And we, I, I think we learned some of them anyway. <laughs> it's funny, as I was preparing for this interview, I was thinking, man, I, I feel like the either orchestra has just been around for as long as I've been listening to music. And then I realized that the band is 25 years old and I'm 37. So that means that you've been around <laughs> since I was 12. So the, it is, in fact, the truth that for as long as I've been seriously listening to jazz, I have known about the either orchestra. And I guess that that kind of indie aesthetic always has been one of the things that appealed to me most about the band that the idea was yes we know what the times are like and we know what everyone else is doing but that doesn't mean we have to do it always seemed like a, a great a very liberating way to to approach this music but but i imagine that it also has to be a a very challenging way to make a living well sure it is uh, it's um i mean having a large group like that is just it's a, it's not a good way to make a living it's a good way to make music and it's a good way to 
make a community. Uh, but obviously, if you split the money, you know, ten ways versus three or four ways, you know, it's, the arithmetic's pretty easy there. Um, and that idea of doing things our own way is very much a part of the philosophy and has been since the beginning. Because if you sort of look back to 1985, when I was founding this band, um, you know, the strong, uh, you know, uh, trend in jazz at that point was the Young Lions, you know, um, guys in suits playing kind of retro 60s music, 50s, 60s music. And, um, uh, you know, I, I put together a band that was like combining avant-garde and electric jazz influences and then dipping back before bebop into the big band tradition and uh we were very much uh, against the tide at that point we you know we we were doing things like um uh, the the often commented upon medley of Thelonious monks tune nutty played as a new orleans parade tune uh you know, um, segueing into uh, "Ode to Billy Joe," and that was the kind of the kind of uh, strange juxtaposition that that we were doing. That that in 1985 was definitely against the trends in jazz. And uh, interestingly enough, I think a lot of the things we were doing in the 80s sort of re-emerged on a wider scale later on. You know, people like picking up somewhat contemporary pop tunes and trying to turn them into jazz in a creative way and just lots of different, uh, you know, taking monk tunes and giving them different grooves, uh, you know, re just regrooving jazz, you know, um, uh, I think, I think we were kind of ahead of the curve on a lot of these things. Um, and part of that is because we're not in New York, we're in Boston and a little bit out of the, you know, out of the jazz business mainstream and the sort of the, the, the the jazz mainstream and so we've always had a little bit more space to to uh, experiment I'm really not one of those people, uh, I, I guess, who falls into the the purist camp, and I don't have any problem with sincere 
um, commercial efforts on the part of of musicians. And it, it strikes me, and, and please correct me if this is wrong, that given that you had decided to, to make your living with this ensemble and, and touring as a part of that, that having at least some concept of the fact that people were going to come watch this and it would be good to to try and ground yourself at least a little bit in things they were familiar with, that, that can't have hurt when you were deciding to tour this thing all around the country. Was that part of, of what you thought about as you were deciding how to arrange and what tunes to choose? Absolutely. Uh, I've been... Uh, I was lucky early in my musical life uh, to play in an original rock band, um, very eclectic and, you know, uh, not a commercial pop band, but an original rock band that, that had an audience quickly, and I got spoiled. Uh, and so I, I I like playing for fans, you know. I, I'm, I don't have the... I mean, I certainly have played many, many, many gigs for very small audiences, um, and I've played very challenging avant-garde music that you know, only draws a small crowd at, at best. Um, but uh, I do like playing for, for an enthusiastic, large audience that's responding because that, that feeds the music. And, uh, and really, you know, that's what you want to do as a musician is you want your feelings and your ideas to reach somebody. And so, um, so I've always felt like, you know, it's good to, where, wherever you're coming from, no, no matter what kind of crazy ideas you might have, by other people's lights, uh, it's good to reach halfway to where the audience is and try to find a meeting point and um, and bring them along. That's in some ways that's more of uh, a victory for creativity than playing really, really um, difficult music for an audience of like nine people who are already. It's like that's preaching to the to the choir. Um, to me, if we can if we can somehow get in front of a larger audience and take them someplace where they didn't expect they'd wind up, I, I feel like that for me that's that, that's what really satisfies me. It's nice if the audience is large enough that you don't feel like the band could take them in a fight. That's always a, <laughs> it's, it's always a nice hallmark of how, how things are going on the road. So this um, this new record, uh, Mood Music for Time Travelers, uh, you know, which comes out in the 25th anniversary year, is, I guess, in some ways, kind of a a, a return to what I would consider the the more classic uh, either orchestra sound after several years. Uh, um, of music that was uh, really informed by collaborations with Ethiopian musicians. Uh, is that a kind of a conscious decision to mark 25 years with an album that is very solidly grounded in the things that made you guys successful? Well, I think so. And part of it is just um, that uh, we move a little bit slowly because 
I do a lot of the production and, you know, I'm, I'm a little sort of a one-man management um, and production outfit for the band because uh, everybody in the band is, you know, they all teach, they have lots of other gigs. It's it's a very busy bunch of people trying to, like, you know, scratch together their, their livings out of, uh, out of the, in the difficult world of playing music. And so it takes, sometimes it takes me a long time to put together projects. And, and it, these... Uh, songs on mood music for time travelers were really written over the last you know five or six years and we've been playing them um but our most high profile gigs as you pointed out over the last half dozen years have been with ethiopian musicians this this very um fruitful and fascinating collaboration with older ethiopians so with that music um has kept us very busy uh you know playing lots of places in europe and just uh, working on those arrangements, I've written probably forty or fifty arrangements of Ethiopian songs to accompany a lot of different guest artists, and so so the album sort of evolved slowly on the side, and we would play it on our on our on our home gigs, and uh, finally it, it you know I finally was able to pull it together uh, kind of uh, in time for the twenty fifth anniversary. Um, so so I, I guess in that sense it's it's an appropriate. Celebration of twenty the twenty fifth anniversary, not by uh, being a retrospective or or like a reissue of some of the older stuff, but but by being all new material and all originals too. Yeah, I think this is still true that the shortest record review ever published in Rolling Stone was one word, and it was Flee, <laughs> F-L-E-E, and that was a review of the, of an album by the band Chase, their self-titled debut record, which is an album I still own on vinyl and really like. And I knew we were going to get along when I was reading the liner notes to this record after having listened to it, and I saw Chase referenced in here. Um <laughs> <laughs> can you and can you talk about how uh, how Chase makes an appearance on this album, so to speak? Uh, well, um, I you know I'm 51 now, so I heard Chase when you know in the late 60s when I was a little kid, a little bit. And uh, the Chase reference here is that the, the, one of the tunes on the album, which is called the, the Petrograd Revision, um, has this fanfare, this brass. I 
if I'd call it a fanfare, this section that um, has this very kind of bright, sunny, very brassy um, feeling. And uh, our one of our members, Tom Halter, who's a trumpet player, who's uh, a little bit older than I, and uh, remembers Chase very well, said to me, that sounds like Chase. And I was like, wow, now there, there's there's a band that a lot of people aren't like referencing these days. <laughs> and uh, so that's where the Chase thing came from. And Tom has a very interesting background because he grew up in Denver. He's, he's by the way, he's uh, the one band member besides me who's been in the band the whole time for 25 years. Um, and he grew up outside of Denver and, and you know, got into jazz and um, went to UNLV, University of Nevada in Las Vegas, and wound up uh, playing in the big bands there and also playing in the um, the Vegas show orchestras uh, but the whole time was wanting to play like free jazz and so he's got this very interesting combination of two elements in his personality it's like he's really knowledgeable in, in big band playing and commercial playing and, and sat in those Vegas orchestras but you know his, his, what he loves to do is just blow free like you know wild and free and so in a way that that's that's a very um that makes him the quintessential either orchestra member uh other people contribute compositions uh, to this record too has that always been part of the way you've operated in the either orchestra well it has been ever since the the beginning uh i've always said to the musicians if you have something that you want us to play you want to you know if you can write some charts write a chart bring it in and uh, in the early years um uh, I had two really excellent writers in the band, Bob Nesky and Curtis Hasselbring, who both wrote, you know, a good ten or more um, original compositions for the band that were very great tunes, very interesting orchestrations, and challenged the band um, in ways, in different ways than my writing was, and challenged me as a player to learn how to play their stuff, and just gave gave uh, me as a programmer uh, two other composers aesthetics to work with you know in terms of uh, putting together programs and um in the in the latter days of the band since since 97 um i haven't been getting as many contributions from sidemen um as as composers uh, but but on this album uh joel yenyer and rick mclaughlin two guys who've been in the band for now over 10 years both uh, contributed two tunes and they're excellent tunes you know um so I, I, as a player, you know, I love playing other composers' tunes because everybody demands something different. You learn how to play something different to, uh, to uh, be able to play them.
think I've asked other leaders of larger ensembles this question before, but when when you're the leader and, you know, in your case also the, you know, the business manager and and doing the bookings and programming the shows, how do you is it easy for you to then be present in the moment as a musician when it's actually time to be on the bandstand playing with the band? Are you able to separate out all of the things that it took to get you onto that stage and and just become part of the show at that point? Well, that, that's an excellent question. Um, it, it's it's it definitely takes some uh, practice, you know, to like leave your 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 manager hat, your agent hat, uh, or that part of your brain off the stage and just get into the music and play. Um, it's 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 not easy, and sometimes I know that uh, it, I don't I, I can't uh, lose all of it, and there's a little thing you know gnawing away at my mind while I'm supposed to be concentrating on playing, but. I think I've done it so many times now that, for the most part, uh, I can get into the moment and enjoy um, having what I regard as the best seat in the house because I'm sta- I stand right in the middle of the band, so I get to hear all these all these fantastic musicians playing this music that I have a certain fondness for, <laughs> and uh, you know, and it, it's all around me, and and that sweeps me away usually. Uh, we talked a little bit off the air that there's a, a big celebration coming up to uh, commemorate the quarter century uh, of this band. Can you talk about what's happening? Yes, we're doing a big concert uh, on December 16th, which is which is 25 years minus one day after the uh, after the first Eid Orchestra concert, and uh, it's in Arlington, Mass, at a place called the Regent Theater, which is a really pretty small theater. It only holds 450. It's an old, like, movie and vaudeville house, you know, and uh, with a little balcony, and it's it's just a, it's a great theater with great sound and sight lines. And this uh, concert um, is going to involve the 10 members of the band plus about 15 alumni coming back. So we're going to have 25 musicians. Um, we will deploy them in all different combinations, ranging from... Uh, everybody together to different sort of historical editions of the band playing older material you know as many of the original people from those recordings and those days will be playing some of the older charts including Curtis Hasselbring and Bob Nesky and then we'll also have some new combinations of stuff because we will have anomalous instrumentation like we're going to have five trombone players there so if you're going to have five trombone players you got to do something that really features you know that sound. We'll have two drummers, we'll have three bass bass players, four piano players. Um, so, so that's uh, it'll be both uh, retrospective and uh, you know a leap into some uh, strange futuristic place where we've never been. Are tickets on sale for that event now? They are. They're at regenttheater.com, and they spell theater in the British way. T h e a E-R-E, Theatre, you know. So it's regenttheater.com in Arlington, Mass. And the tickets are on sale, and it is reserved seating. So uh, if you're if you're planning on coming, um, get buy your tickets now. Although I will say there's hardly a bad seat in the house. And uh, folks, check out the show notes uh, for this show at thejazzsession.com. We'll have links uh, to the theater and, of course, to the either orchestra website, so you can find out more and, and check out that show if you can make it to... Uh, to Arlington, and it sounds like you should because it sounds like it's going to be a great event. Um, uh, Russ, how did the uh, the Ethiopian collaboration come about? 
Well, it came about uh, the old, the, the honest way, <laughs> which is that I started listening to that music as a as a fan, as a listener, and just fell in love with it, and actually listened to uh, the Egypt, uh, Egyptian, Ethiopian, I'm listening to Egyptian music now too, Ethiopian music from the late 60s and early 70s, um, uh, and I couldn't get enough of it. There was a compilation that was put together called uh, Ethiopian Groove, Golden 70s, and I... I for two years I listened to this record over and over again and then it finally dawned on me you know I could arrange some of this for the either orchestra it wasn't even like I heard it and I said oh we have to do this Uh, it was just it just took swept me away as a listener and so um, I brought in some tunes to the band in 97 when we were sort of reforming after a, a short hiatus and it just clicked for that particular group of musicians and for some of the things that I wanted to do, and uh, we recorded it. The, the the man that put together the Ethiopian Groove compilation contacted us, and he turned out to be um, very involved in bringing Ethiopian music out of the out of Ethiopia, and and was involved in a festival in Ethiopia, and had us invited there, and we we went to play our renditions of Ethiopian songs, and uh, we were well received, much to my relief. And we met a lot of the older musicians whose records we'd been listening to and started collaborating with them. And then uh, they started coming to the United States, and we became involved with them for shows in Europe. And, and it just it, it really snowballed. But it was really based on the fact that, that the music that we, that we were playing was so great, and it really... It really dovetailed with jazz and Latin music uh, because the Ethiopian music was inf- influenced by American music, and also because it all comes out of Africa in some way, uh, and also because uh, Ethiopian scales uh, are very, um, some of them are very, very odd and create very interesting harmonies, which our jazz ears love. And so uh, there's just a lot of elements about that music that make it very uh, ripe for interpretation in a jazz way.
Russ, looking back on 25 years of the either orchestra, what has made all of this worth it for you? <laughs> that's that's a great question. Um, it's uh, I think that of course the adventure of playing for all of these audiences in all over the United States. I think I counted 34 states that we've been in. We've been in about 10 or 12 foreign countries, and the whole idea of, of you know taking your ideas and, and your feelings. Um, from a little little something in your head to other people to other people far away and connecting with them is really important and, and that's that's fantastic I, I wish that uh, more musicians could have that opportunity and then also the feeling of camaraderie with with the other musicians um, that's real that's really important for me is that building up that that sort of uh, family or team spirit within the band um, and sharing their experiences because the people who, who, who have been on these, these adventures, these musical adventures and these, you know, travel adventures remember stuff that I don't remember. We get together and, and start telling stories and stuff comes up that, that from 20 years ago that I totally forgotten about. And so it's nice to be able to share, you know, a big slice of your cre- life and your creative life with with a big group of people, uh, and uh, it's an extended community at this point. Uh, I counted the other night, I was trying to think of how many band members I've had, and not counting subs or people that just made one rehearsal or people who auditioned, uh, we've had 48 band members. And so it's a really big kind of dispersed community of people who are part of the, the group, and you know, that's, I like that. That really makes me, you know, proud to have, um, been involved with all these people and for them to learn something from from the experience and get some exposure and and uh have some good stories to tell once had a, a Jethro Tull box set, you know, that was vinyl size, and in it, it had this book, and there was a, a gatefold center of the book that was a family tree of Jethro Tull with all of the people who'd <laughs> ever been in Jethro Tull at the bottom, and there were like, you know, 7,000 of those, and then it linked them to all of the other bands that they had been in, and it was basically every band in the world of rock and roll, and so it right. sounds like we could do a similar family tree for the either orchestra over the 25 years, and we'd end up in a lot of places that people would recognize them, is my guess. Absolutely. I mean, if you just take uh, three, three or four of our most well-known alumni, um, uh, John Medeski, uh, Matt Wilson, Josh Roseman, and Miguel Zenon. You're, there you uh, go. <laughs> You're just about everywhere, right, right we're, there. Yeah, we're, we're two, degrees of, or two or three degrees of separation from anybody in the jazz world, and that's, just, <laughs> that's four. 
And then if you take, you know, so the other 44 who have sidemanned with this band and that band and that, you know, and lead their own projects, it's just, you know, we're, it's, it's very connected. Uh, Russ, are there uh, things you'd like to mention that I haven't asked you about? You know, you've done a very good job, actually. I, I can't. I think we've touched on most of the important things. Uh, you know, th- I, I suppose one of the things that 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 I've always uh, noticed, or I've noticed in the last few years, is that everybody around the jazz—not everybody, but so many people around the jazz world or jazz fans—have heard of the Either Orchestra and never actually listened to the music. And uh, I. Uh, you know, I, I think that, that that that's for a few reasons. Is that we? I never went to New York and did the kind of sideman thing, um, and so we missed the missed a certain part of the jazz audience that way. And I think because it's a kind of a quirky name and it doesn't sound like a jazz group's name, it sounds more like I don't know some offbeat rock band or something like that. Uh, and also because when we first came out, we were probably people commented on the, the avant-garde elements a lot um, even though that was just one little part of the of the of the stew um, I think a lot of people haven't like gotten around to listening to us and so to them I say what do we have to do you know do we have to last another 25 years before you actually <laughs> give the music a listen I think people are people are, are often pleasantly surprised that that the music is much more um, uh, accessible than they think it will be, based on some of the preconceptions they've developed about uh, about us. So that's I'm hoping if you want to give us a 25th uh, birthday uh, gift, uh, jazz lovers of the world, just actually, you know, uh, buy one of our records or download a few tracks and listen to it. And I think you'll be ple- pleasantly surprised. And there'll be links to do just that at thejazzsession.com. And of course, uh, folks will have been hearing the music while we've been talking. And if that doesn't convince you, nothing will. So uh, I highly recommend uh, the new record, Mood Music for Time Travelers, and all of them that preceded it. And uh, Russ, it's been a a real pleasure listening to this band, as I've now realized for my entire adult life. And uh, it's been an equal (laughs) pleasure talking to you. I thank you for taking the time to do it. Well, thanks for having me. I really appreciate it.
That's the Either Orchestra from their new album, Mood Music for Time Travelers, on Accurate Records. I'm Jason Crane. This is the Jazz Session, presented by AllAboutJazz.com, the web's leading source for jazz news, reviews, MP3 downloads, and more. Every episode of this show is in iTunes and also for free for as long as the internet exists at thejazzsession.com. Please do support the show by becoming a member. Visit thejazzsession.com slash join for more information there. Thanks to the Respect Sextet for the theme music for this broadcast. Thanks to Dave Rabel for the show's logo. Oh yeah, and don't forget respectsextet.com. Buy all their records. Thank you. And thank you for listening. Now get out there and support live jazz, folks, whenever and wherever you can, and come back next time for another conversation about jazz on The Jazz Session. Thank you for listening, everybody. Bye. Bye. Bye.